If you haven't been with us before or in the last few weeks, we're doing a series uh, called The Art of Conversation. And we're talking about this because we really believe that one of our pillar goals as a church is to raise the conversational IQ, uh, not just here in our community, but to, that we might come to this place, learn to speak uh, in the ways that we were created to speak with one another and to talk about the things that matter most, to talk about the things of God, and to do so persuasively, and then to go from this place and go out into the other communities in which we participate and do the exact same thing. Speak Uh, persuasively about the things of God, about the person of Jesus, um, about what it means to be created in his image and live in his world and worship his name. But, if you're like me, you're probably not great at that. And so we've thought, let's spend some time trying to get better. So that's what we're doing. And um, this is our... Second to last week in this series, and then like Chris said, we'll be starting a new series. We'll be going through the book of Ephesians starting in October. So that's exciting because we ultimately believe that the Word of God is the best starting place and ending place for all thinking. But as we're going on today, we're talking about how humor is quite persuasive. How humor is quite, quite persuasive. It's one of the keys to persuasive conversation. And the secret to good comedy, to good humor, is, I believe, the ability to observe the world that we live in and then to highlight the absurdities that we find in the human experience. The human experience is full of absurdities. And here's what I mean by absurdities. Absurdities can take multiple nuanced forms. Uh, Absurdities can be incongruities. Uh, We are both this, but we're also that. So it's like the skinny guy that you see that always wins the hot dog eating contest, right? You just look at it and you're like, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) It's not, shouldn't be that way. It also takes the form of ludicrousness, something that is amusingly out of place. Uh, Some might say a reality TV star running for president. Some would say. Irrationality is another nuanced form of absurdity. This would be United States swimmers lying about being robbed at gunpoint. It's irrational, (laughs) but we do those sorts of things, and we'll come back to this, actually, as we go. We'll talk about this a little bit later, okay? This one particularly highlights the absurdity of the human experience. Now, I don't know who your favorite comedian is. Uh, I hope you talked about that a little bit, Um, but one of my favorite comedians with this particular type of humor that we'll be talking today, which is observational humor, is a guy by the name of Jim Gaffigan. Love Jim Gaffigan. Um, clean humor, uh, sees the world, talks a lot about family, a lot about food. I like Jim Gaffigan. He's actually a devout Catholic, so he's a man of God. I love men of God. 
And uh, you may have heard of his, his most famous bit is about Hot Pockets. Hot Pockets. So if you've never seen Jim Gaffigan, go watch him. But he's got this whole bit about Hot Pockets. And why, who invented Hot Pockets? And who pays for Hot Pockets? It, you know what a Hot Pocket is, right? Stuffed with cheese and some type of chewy material. Maybe meat, nobody knows for sure. Hot Pockets, but they're great. Now the funny thing is, I saw Jim Gaffigan in concert when I was living in Colorado, and um, he did this Hot Pocket bit, and I'm just dying laughing because, right, it's true. And I used to always, growing up in particular, my high school buddy, my next door neighbor, we used to, actually we couldn't afford the real deal Hot Pockets, so we we, we had this knockoff brand called kangaroo pouches, but the same idea, they were hot pockets, they were kangaroo pouches, and I used to always go to his house because I loved, I'd steal them out of the freezer, I'd pop them in, and we'd eat this stuff, it was terrible, and uh, the funny thing about his bits and any good comedian is that it's true, right? What in the world are we doing eating hot pockets? But most of us, a lot of us in this room probably have. It's a weird thing that we do as human beings. So really good humor, really good comedy has this way of making us laugh, chuckle, kind of shake our head, right? We, all, we always shake our head because we're like, oh my gosh, it's true. You know, he's talking about me or she's talking about me. And so this is what really good comedy does. It highlights truth. Truth that we often don't like to think about. Like, why am I eating Hot Pockets? What in the world was I thinking? And it's one of the only mediums left, or really for all time, in which truth can be spoken unapologetically. And uh, in, in olden times, um, in the days of kings and queens and courts, uh, they would actually have one person whose job it was to just be funny. And that was the jester. And his job was to come in and sort of poke fun. And he was the only person in the royal court that was allowed to say what was true. Because he said it in such a, jo a jolly way. So he'd come in and he'd, he'd tell the truth. And that's what humor does. It exposes the truth. And so this is what makes humor so persuasive. Because it's one of the ways we have in order to speak the truth that we see, and particularly the absurdities and the incongruities we see in the human experience. And we talk about it, oftentimes starting with humor. We need humor in order to make truth come to the forefront. And as we'll see, there are lower levels of incongruities and absurdities in the human experience, and then there's higher levels. And what we'll see is that not all levels of incongruity and absurdity humor can handle. There's something else that we need to handle the higher levels, the higher things of the absurdness of the human experience. So in a sense then, uh, my hope is that I'll convince you that by, that, that, that by the end of tonight you'll be convinced that you must all become gestures, jesters, that you must all become, in a sense, comedians. And this doesn't mean that you have to be um, 
a stand-up comedian. It doesn't mean that you have to necessarily even be funny. It just means that you have to be willing to point out the absurdities in the human experience. To say, why are you eating that Hot Pocket? (laughs) What are you doing? That's a terrible idea. And it has been since the beginning of time. (laughs) Okay, So that's my hope. Using humor, I think it's necessary if we want to be persuasive. So how do we make that happen? Before I tell you more about this, let me, make a, let me just make this caveat, okay? Because there's all sorts of humor, there's all ways to make people laugh, uh, and there's different types of comedy, okay? And so I, I just want to make sure we know what we're talking about today. We're focusing on this, this kind of comedy, which is observational humor. Um, this, this, this is the kind that we're advocating today. And it's not malicious humor. We're not advocating malicious humor. We're not advocating um, comedy that puts people down in order to gain an upper hand on them. That's not the kind of comedy that we're advocating. We're not advocating vulgar, shock and awe comedy. We're not advocating comedy that's primarily for entertainment. It's not what we're talking about. We're not saying be entertaining. We're not saying become the center of attention. We're not saying gain for yourself an audience by being funny. That's, that's not what we're talking about. We're also not talking about comedy or humor that's escapist, meaning that's too hard to really talk about, so I'm just make a joke so that we don't have to talk about it anymore. That's not the kind of comedy we're talking about. We're not distracting people from the pain of life. That's not, that's not our goal. Um, but we're, we're talking about a kind of humor that, that, that some philosophers would call hopeful humor. Hopeful. And this is why it's hopeful. Um, because in a world as ours, in the world as it actually is, there are all sorts of things that we will see that are actually terrible. There are absurdities and incongruities that are, that are terrible. Uh, they're horrible and that, that, are, that are hard. There's suffering. There's, there's things that just don't make sense. And why is it this way? Uh, but hopeful humor can and should be used to remind us, particularly as Christians, that this is not the end of the story. That this is not the only way that the world will be and can be. That it is broken, but it is not the end. There will be another way, and so we're able to laugh that it is this way. I call this hopeful humor. So it's important to say that because I'm sure we've experienced all types of comedy, but we do not want to engage in all types of comedy, all types of humor. So why is the world so full of humor, anyhow? Why are there all these absurdities, incongruities? And the answer is the human being. The human being is ridiculous. I don't know if you've realized this. We are crazy walking incongruities. We breathe and we speak absurdities all the time. And so it makes human beings really the great center of comedy and humor. Human beings, is this is what is so funny in the world. And there's a reason for this. Uh, there's a reason for this, and there was a, 
there was a French scientist, a writer, philosopher, theologian named Blaise Pascal. And he was writing uh, back kind of during the time of the Renaissance. And he developed this apologetic strategy, this defense of the Christian faith um, that inc- included an argument from human nature called an anthropological argument for God and for the Christian faith. And so he argues for, uh, he argues saying that the doctrines of the creation and the fall, which we see in Genesis, are actually the only thing that answer that question of why human beings are so funny, why we're so absurd. And so he said, because Christianity explains that incongruity in the human person better than anything, he believes Christianity to be objectively true. And he called his argument from the human being, he, called, uh, he, he, he referred to it as, we are deposed royalty. Deposed royalty. The human being is deposed royalty. And so he'd say this, on the one hand, the Bible says that we are royalty. We are the royalty of creation. And we read in Genesis that God created everything. And then, as his final pinnacle of creation, he created mankind in his own image. And he gave us the authority. He gave us dominion over all things. And he said, rule my creation as the kings and queens of this world. That's what we read in the biblical account of creation. And so this is why when we look around at the human being, the human being has incredible capacity for greatness. We have incredible capacity for things like beauty and creativity, for love, for honor, for ingenuity, for thinking and imagination. It's truly breathtaking at times. It's truly breathtaking at times, the things that human beings can do. But at other times, we choose to use these same gifts for ourselves, to control creation, including other human beings, for our own pleasure and for our own reward. And this is the uniquely human capacity for evil and horror. There are some truly ugly things that we have the capacity to participate in. Destruction, selfishness, bigotry, racism. And so in a real sense, you see, we are no longer royal in the way God wanted us to be. No longer the way he intended us to rule. We are, in that sense, deposed. We've been taken down from our thrones. We're no longer functioning as we should. And when we read the Bible, we see in Genesis chapter 3, this is known as the fall of man. And it's when we chose our own way instead of God's way. And since that time, humanity has been twisting all of its greatness and creating all sorts of wretchedness. We have been rebelling against God. This is what we call sin. And we all do it. Every one of us has this capacity. Pascal said it this way. He said, man's greatness 
and wretchedness are so evident that the true religion must necessarily teach us that there is in man some great principle of greatness and some great principle of wretchedness. You see this? How do we account for both? And both in the, in the human being. He goes on to say, what sort of freak is man? How novel, how monstrous, how chaotic, how paradoxical, how prodigious. Judge of all things, feeble earthworm. Repository of truth, sink of doubt and error. The glory and the refuse of the universe. Perhaps this juxtaposition of greatness and wretchedness is most seen uh, in the unique giftings of those often that we highlight, whether it's in sports or the arts, movies, television, even our politicians. We see both, don't we, at work. I mean, think of the artist, the ability to paint some of the most incredible paintings, or, or like a jazz mus- musician who can create such a wonderful composition, and yet in their personal life, they can't stay sober, they can't stay in a relationship, they're wretched. How can both be there? But it's not just certain great men and women, it's all of us, right? In each and every one of us, we have greatness and we have wretchedness. How do we account for that? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is what Scripture tells us. And it makes sense of this incongruity in the human being that's the center of all great comedy. We are all deposed royalty. We are all emperors without clothes. It's sad, but it's true. And at times it's very funny, the things that we'll do. Now, This brings me to my first step towards learning to be humorous, and that is to learn to laugh at yourself. Because probably by now, or maybe when I first started talking about this, you said, Dave, I'm just not funny. I've never made a good joke in my life. Don't try to make me into a comedian. Well, you don't have to be a comedian, but you have to learn to laugh at yourself because you're a walking absurdity. Sorry, you are. I am, we all are. And so when we learn to see ourselves for what we actually are, this combination of greatness and wretchedness, and we just are honest about it, that's humor, right? So I want you to learn to not take yourself so seriously, but to take the things of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, your sin, very seriously. You see that? So my favorite things to say to people, don't take yourself so seriously, but take Jesus and the gospel very seriously. You can't take yourself too seriously because you have to learn to laugh at yourself because it's crazy some of the things that you do. This is the beginning of humor. Everybody can participate in this and it becomes quite persuasive when we're able to be sincere about what and who we are. Now, you don't need to become so self-deprecating that all you ever do is talk about your weakness or your wretchedness. But you should, at times, admit some of the (laughs) very stupid things that you do. 
We don't have enough time for me to tell you all of mine, so if you want to hear them, go get coffee. Be happy to make you laugh with some of the things I've said and done just this week (laughs) that remind me of this truth. I am deposed royalty. It's this common storyline in all of our lives that actually draws us together, unites us with whoever we're talking with, and, and it's like this big billboard that, 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 that we should see, but for some reason we don't see. And the billboard highlights the truth of the gospel. But when we take ourselves too seriously, when we refuse to highlight the absurdities in our own person, we miss this chance to use our own personal experience to move people towards that gospel in our conversation. So let's start sort of be at the own gestures of our own court, show people how the gospel has impacted our life, helped us to see who we actually are, but that that's okay because Christ covers all the wretchedness on the cross. Stop living in this self-delusion and see Jesus for who he is. Turn back to him. Serve him. Tell people about this when you finally saw what you, what you were. Now you're thinking to yourself, well Dave, that last statement, that seemed more like a statement of faith in the gospel than it did a statement of humor. Well yeah, it is. I shifted from humor to faith. And that's because humor and faith are linked together in an intimate relationship. So I get a lot of this from uh, the book that's inspired this series, so if you want to pick this up and read more about this, a book called Fool's Talk by Oz Guinness. And And the link here, the vital link between humor and faith goes something like this. Both humor and faith focus on honesty. They focus on dealing with these incongruities, these contradictions that we see in our human experience that we struggle to reconcile in our mind. Both humor and faith, this is its focus. Now, unquestionably, in our day and age, it's in vogue to duck those incongruities, to sort of pretend that they don't exist, and instead stress one side of the incongruity. So we pick this side of the incongruity and we just only talk about it. We only talk about, it is this way. This is sort of the case with um, a group of writers known as the New Atheists. They introduce reality, or sorry, they reduce reality to what can be handled only by reason and by science. And they avoid everything else that doesn't fit into that reductionism. So they they don't even address it if science and reason don't address it. But neither humor or faith duck the challenge of both elements of a paradox. So we take, humor and faith take incongruence incongruence seriously, but they respond in different ways and at different levels. So let me try to explain this. Humor works at a lower level. Its genius lies in its capacity to sort of open up a new way to see the world, a new vantage point to see the world differently. And so, When that's opened up, we begin to laugh because we realize we don't need to take that so seriously. 
It's kind of funny. But it doesn't work, humor, at every level. To laugh at an old woman who's tripped in the street would be heartless. It would indicate a deficiency in our humanity, right? But many people would become highly amused if they see a pompous politician slip, for instance, on a banana peel, right? On his way to receive some empty, undeserved accolade. The first case only reminds us of the everyday suffering of the world, but the second case encourages us to see through the pretensions of human power and to take them less seriously. The contrast between the politician's dignity and the indignity he suffers makes us laugh, and then that laughter is liberating. You see how humor works? But, as these incidents of wrong sort of mount, as they sort of ramp up, and and matters of error become matters of evil, and when common evil becomes malignant evil, while the note of judgment remains, the note of mercy must fall away. We can't laugh at everything. It becomes inappropriate at times because real evil is not something to be taken lightly. So what happens when these incidents ramp up to this level, to these higher levels of absurdity? Well, especially when we're talking about evil and suffering, that's exactly when faith takes over for humor. It comes into its own because nothing else can reconcile the irreconcilable except for faith. So faith in these higher situations, it's still like humor in that one, it is an expression of the freedom of the human spirit to face any difficulty. And two, it faces both sides of the incongruence squarely. It doesn't pretend that one side doesn't exist. And, And third, it reconciles them through this creative subversion. Remember what I said about we're able to see that that's not the end of the story. Only through faith. That's right. <laughs> Come on. So, so this is indeed the beauty of the Christian faith, generally, and, and really the beauty of the dynamics of the cross of Jesus in particular. That both resemble this art which is more like comedy than tragedy. Do you know these distinctions? Comedy and tragedy. It's more like comedy. Both tragedy and comedy turn on the deep contradictions and discrepancies between the world as it is and the world that we wish it could be. Both forms of art. But tragedy only reminds us of the iron bars of this prison that we live in, from which we can never escape. That's tragedy. But comedy, comedy shows us a way to break out. It's in comedy that the pitfall and the setback are not the end. Just like in the Christian faith, 
when death, the ultimate setback, is not our end. And this is, of course, taught through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through his death on a cross and his resurrection three days later. You see how that works? See how that's like comedy? The setback isn't the end of the story. Os Guinness says it this way. He says, The dynamic of the resurrection and the God who cannot be buried is the dynamic of a child's jack-in-the-box written large in golden cosmic letters. I love that. You can't keep him down. He rose again. And it's so, it's so is our faith in those moments that moves us forward. See this intimate relationship between humor and faith? See how both tackle these incongruities, these absurdities in the human experience. Both expressions of freedom, but, but the laughter only deals with some things. It doesn't deal with everything. Is there anything? And yes, there is. It's our faith. Praise God that we don't only have humor, that we have faith. Peter Berger, philosopher, says this, sometimes we must laugh in order to perceive. And then Reinhold Niebuhr says this, humor points then to faith. Humor is in fact the prelude to faith, and laughter is the beginning of prayer. I love that line. Laughter is the beginning of prayer because when we see the world as it is, we can only laugh. And that laughter is like, God, fix this. Please. I mean, all of us in this room, we're going through something which we do not believe. We cannot see the other side of it. And so we pray, and it's laughter. God, I don't know what to do. I realize I am out of control. That is our prayer. It is our faith. We have to learn then to make these transitions from the things of humor into the deeper, the higher levels, which are the things of faith. If we learn to navigate these things, we can learn then to become persuasive in our conversation. Let me give you a couple examples of this escalation from humor into, into faith, or the matters of faith. Uh, has anybody driven down 45th? Brand new cafe, maybe not brand new, maybe like, I don't know, six months, a year old. Uh, it's a cafe in which you can go in and rent a cat for an hour or so while you drink your coffee. Uh, I believe it's called Meowtropolis, or something like that. Meowtropolis. I don't know what it's called. Meowtropolis. Uh, Demi is a free, if you want to go, Demi's there every Thursday and Friday. Oh, we don't rent them, we just play with them. Okay, but you can buy them if you want. Okay. I think that, yeah, I think that just shut down for a while because everybody was buying the cats from the store. Anyhow, it's funny, right? On this very low level of absurdity, it's funny that in, we now have cafes in which you play with cats and that you, you, you pay admission to go do that. Now, that's funny, right? On this lower level. But, but wait, there's another level at work here, right? It's a higher level of absurdity, of incongruity, which requires something more than just humor to explain. And almost if we laugh at it, it's cruel. And that is this. 
that we live in a city in which there must be a kind of loneliness, a kind of isolation, in which a group could go into a bank and say, I need a loan to start a cafe that rents cats. It's funny, but it's also so sad, right? Like, this is our city that we live in, and people are lonely. Why is that? Why, why is it this way? Let me give you another example. I'm back to my favorite swimmer, Ryan Lochte. If you don't know the story, uh, he's an Olympic swimmer, and him and some buddies were out one night, and they went into a gas station bathroom or something like this, and they vandalized the place. I think they, like, tore a poster off the wall. Something very, very small... Um, and the <laughs> attendants tried to stop them and get them to pay for it, and they fled the scene, and, and there was some uproar, and then, and then Ryan Lochte gets interviewed, and he lies, and he says, we were assaulted at gunpoint, and they tra- people tried to rob us. And he just lies, and you're, and, and you're thinking, this is absurd. Why would he lie about that? I think, the fine, or I think to, to pay for the vandalism would be like 20 bucks or something. And he lies. So there's one level of absurdity, and it's like, you think, you know, very famous, all these endorsements, this one, why would he do this? This is crazy, right? But then there's another level of absurdity that, that goes something like this. Why in the world do we care so much about this incident? Like, this becomes the moral outrage of the last five years in our, our country is this guy lying about this incident. And it's like people are like, they're just so angry. And it's like all anybody can talk about. And the Brazilians are even angry. And it's like, man, you live in a great country. It's, it's amazingly warm there. Everyone's got great tans. Like, why are you so upset about this? And uh, it's funny, right? Like, this outrage over this little white lie. This is the world we live in, right? Picks up on these little moral absurdities and, and blows them out of proportion. It makes me laugh more than anything. But let me throw another angle in here. And this one's, I think, a higher level of absurdity. Remember this. All this moral outrage over somebody lying where nobody got hurt, nothing really of significance was lost. But there's other things happening at the Olympics. And I don't know if you know this. Do you know that the International Olympic Committee paid for and supplied over 450,000 condoms for the Olympic Village. Now, just in case you weren't a mathlete like I was, and I was, let me just run the math for you. The IOC estimated, and they've got a lot of money, they've got people doing the figures, running the numbers. They estimated, based on past experience, whatever data they had, 
that the sexual behavior of the Olympic athletes, because they're the only ones allowed in the Olympic Village, would be as such that they needed in the ballpark of 90 condoms per each pair of athletes. Now, I've paired them up because I've assumed this is usually when you need contraception. So I've paired them up to come up with this 90 condoms per athlete. And do you know how long the Olympics are? 16 days. Now, I'm going to be fair and assume that every athlete stays in the village for all 16 days, which we know they do not. That means that they're estimating that every athlete or pair needs five condoms per day. That's absurd to me. Is it absurd to anybody else? That this is the sexual ethic of our day? Nobody cares about that. And what's more, these human beings whom we're talking about, that are living in the village, these are the same people that we celebrate. Why? Because of their superiority in self-discipline, self-control, refraining from any and everything that would affect their bodies in order that four years down the line they might compete as Olympic athletes. And we lift them up on pedestals for their self-control, their self-discipline, for the way they care for their bodies. And yet... We expect them to show absolutely no self-control, absolutely no discipline in the realm of sexual morality. To me, this is wild. Their bodies are their most prized possessions, and they give it away to strangers to pursue the passions and the pleasures of the moment. 90 condoms per pair of athletes for a 16-day period. But yet we focus on the little lie told by a young man who doesn't want his reputation ruined by knowing that he vandalized the bathroom when he was really drunk. Does anyone think that the, the moral compass of our world is just a little bit off axis? It's a little bit incongruent. It's a little absurd to me. What can possibly explain this? This is the question that I want you to put in your art bag when you're learning to have the art of conversation. This question, what can possibly explain this? You can always ask that question when an absurdity is raised, whether it's through humor or other kinds of... What can explain this? Can science explain this? Can psychology explain this? Anthropology? Biology? Can anything answer the madness, which is human experience? The greatness and the wretchedness of man. I don't think anything answers this except for the Word of God, which tells us that we were created in the image of God, kings and queens of all creation, but we gave that up in order to worship the creation rather than the Creator. Romans chapter 1. It's true, is it not? The greatness and the wretchedness. Maybe the Olympic Games is the perfect stage where this drama is played out. The greatness of man and in some ways... The wretchedness. Wow, Dave. <laughs> that turned pretty tragic 
pretty quick. Bring it back. Well, it did. And it is tragic because our sin is tragic. Our sin is tragic. But hopefully those are some examples of, of just how some things started kind of light, some comedy. We all had a good chuckle about Mr. Lochte. But we move into some serious matters. Now y'all will be better at it than me. And there'll be more back and forth. But you see how humor and faith are related because they bring up these things that nothing else can reconcile. So this is what I want you to learn how to do. I want you to practice seeing the absurdities, the incongruities of the human experience, including those in your own life. Learn to see those. And then practice talking about those with your Christian friends. And once you've practiced seeing them and talking about them, then start talking about the absurdities of the human experience with all sorts of friends. Those that are people of faith, those that are, are not. And then start asking that next question that I, that I told you. What can possibly explain this? And then learn to transition from, from the things of humor into the things that only faith can address. There's one thing that's, I think, more humorous than anything at all in the human experience. And that's religion. The humor of religion. Perhaps most humor, uh, perhaps the most humorous thing of all is, is this thought that we have in the human mind that we can be good enough to please God and to live with Him forever, to earn our way into His favor, into His presence. Uh, I think of this like cosmic club Line. You ever been to a club, Cody? Let's <laughs> just chug it. You've been to a club and every, every guy, right? <laughs> every guy is standing in this long line, right? Wanting to get into this really cool club. Maybe you're down at the Bellagio. I don't know what their club is. They got a club, I think. And everybody wants to get in. And uh, everybody's thinking, they, they, I should be the next one to get in. I look good enough and I'm great. Uh, and then this guy, this jabroni, walks up and he's got all this money, just tons of cash, and he buys his way and he bribes his way and he gets, you're like, how did that guy get in? It's, it's terrible. And then the pretty people show up and they just cut to the front of the line and they got some pretty girls with them, so they get in. Is this the way that God works? Is this the way that heaven works? That the pretty people get in? The people with money get in? The people that sort of long suffer the longest in the line, they finally get in. This is hilarious. That this is what we think the God who created everything. That this is the way he works. But this is what religion, the religion of man tells us. That we can somehow get in if we just work the system the right way. We can get in to the club. There's no way in except through Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel tells us. There is no one that's just pretty enough, that's done enough, that has enough money, that just long suffers enough and waits long enough. There's no complex algorithm of good enough to get in. There's only one way. You either know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior or you don't. This is what the gospel teaches us. And it teaches us that we can get in because of nothing that we've done, 
but everything of what Jesus has done. Religion is hilarious to me because who decides? Oh, I'm just a little bit better than this guy. Who's making that call? How can we ever know if we're good enough? This is why we need grace. Now, when you begin to become experts in identifying and highlighting these absurdities in the human experience, when you begin to see those things, then you also need to begin to become experts at explaining and understanding and proclaiming the grace of God. Because the grace of God is the one thing that deals with the absurdity of the human experience, the human problem, the absurdity of the brokenness which defines us as human beings, human beings apart from God. And uh, I'm not going to have a ton of time, so I'm going to tell you to read it on your own. But in your bulletin, there's a text from Romans chapter 7, and it's the Apostle Paul speaking about this absurdity of sin. And, and, and basically, I'll just read you part of it, because it's good to read this. Um, let's start in verse 21. You can read the whole, th- or actually verse 19. He says this. He, he's just talking about the power of sin. He's saying, For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what is good, or, or if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members, I see in my members another law, the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man am I. Who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, there's a lot of debate. Is he writing, is he saying before I was a Christian or after? It really doesn't matter in this sense that he's explaining the absurdity of the human experience that I want to be good. I want to do what's right. I long to do it and yet I keep sinning. I keep falling short of the glory of God. What could I do? And he says, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, only by Him, only by grace can I be saved. So when you understand God and you understand this absurdity that is sin, that I want to do good but I can't do good, I always fall short, when you understand that and you understand saving yourself is hilarious, you cannot do it, and then you hear the gospel of redemptive grace, you hopefully begin to laugh in the best of ways because you say that is the only thing that makes sense. There's no other way around this absurdity. There is a holy God, and I am unholy. I am unclean. I am then therefore incapable of coming into his presence because holiness and unholiness cannot cohabitate. And so God, if he is the only source of goodness, then, then, then where does that leave me? Therefore, I am without hope, I am, if left to my own devices. But God, in his mercy, intervenes and sent the only possible solution to the human conundrum. He sent himself. This is the divine act that is beyond all human comprehension to fully grasp that God became human, stepping into our absurdity in the person of Jesus 
born in the town of Bethlehem, that he lived the sinless life of complete obedience that we were unable to live, that he voluntarily allowed himself to be arrested, convicted, put to death for the crimes that I committed for my sin before God and his holiness. And that, my friend, is absurd. But it happened. And then the same Jesus rose from the dead three days later, to prove once and for all that his work was finished, that sin and death were defeated, and that all who have faith, that are united to Jesus Christ by faith, we celebrated this last week through baptism. That was an awesome celebration, by the way. We celebrated this, that Jesus defeats our sin and our death for us when we unite with him. This is the gospel of redemptive grace. It's the good news That God loved us this much, and his love is absurd in a way. But it's true. And so we live out this truth that we do not get what we deserve. We get forgiveness instead. We do not get what we earned. We get life eternal with God instead. We do not get what is fair Because we get Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace, my friends, is absurd. But it's true. And it's only the absurdity of grace that deals with the absurdities, the ultimate absurdities of the human experience. It's the only thing powerful enough. And so this is my hope for you, that as human beings created in the image of God, this is my hope. Human beings created in the image of God, but also sinners, walking examples of incongruity, that no matter how many times you've heard it in the past, and no matter how many times you'll hear it in the future, that every time you hear the gospel of grace proclaimed that you begin to chuckle and to shake your head and be like, that's true. It's true. And it's absurd that God loves me this much. (laughs) But it's the best news I've ever heard because it's true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that it's true. And there's just something about great comedy that when we hear it, we say, yeah, that's true. And the gospel's like that, but it's so good. It's the best truth that when we get honest about our sin and our our inability to save ourselves, and then we hear that God has done something about it. Oh, that's so good. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that you sent him to take care of the problem, to reconcile the irreconcilable to your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.